back from Russia, <laughs> but I don't, uh, I'm not, it hasn't built, I only preached about 50 hours in six days, so no biggie. So you don't have to be scared this morning. It's when I go in, I don't preach that it gets scary. <laughs> now I'd ask you to turn your Bible someplace, but, uh, we're going to be all over the place now. Uh, you could put a, maybe a marker in Matthew two and Luke two because we're going to kind of switch around between those two places. One of the, you know, the tricky things of being in the ministry a long time is Christmas happens every year, but there's only so many Christmas texts. And so, you know, you preach through Matthew, you preach through Luke, and then you're, you know, you preach through the Isaiah 714 and 96 and Micah 52, and then you start getting creative. And uh, you start looking for any verse in the Bible that talks about Jesus' birth. And you start going through the epistles and, you know, finding little fragment texts that just kind of talk about Jesus' birth or being born. And, and pretty soon you end up in Revelation talking about dragons trying to eat children. And <laughs> I think that was two years ago. And uh, somebody brought up their, their child's picture of the sermon, which showed this big dragon trying to eat this baby. And uh, I said, well, they must have been listening. So um, anyway, so this morning, uh, we're, we're eventually going to have to go back and start over. But uh, for this morning, we're going to do kind of a, an overarching uh, survey of the whole Christmas story. This is not going to be your typical exposition of a text. But I think it'd be helpful just to to survey just the whole picture of what the Bible says and then kind of just emphasize the big idea of Christmas as a whole, and then in the process of that, debunk a lot of the myths and fictions that have arisen around the Christmas story. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Now, uh, there are all sorts of songs out there. That's where most of the myths come from. Songs um, like Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Here Comes Santa, which are all, you know, cute little Christmas songs that everybody hears every Christmas. Um, I'm not worried about those songs really corrupting you. Uh, most, most of you will, will escape those kinds of songs altogether. But then there's songs like uh, the Christmas song, you know, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. And Jack Frost nipping at your nose and Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like a... It kind of lulls you into a happy Christmas stupor. Um, yeah, and then the song goes on to, you know, weave in a little Santa, flying reindeer, toys for good little boys and girls. And really the true meaning of Christmas is never mentioned. There are other songs like Winter Wonderland and White Christmas and I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll talk about good Christmas feelings and uh, you know, memories and happy times of generic Christmas cheer, uh, but never mention the true meaning of Christmas. Still other songs promote to just innocuous, happy times, you know, have yourself a a merry little Christmas, a happy holiday, or we wish you a merry Christmas. And really, all these songs are songs atheists can sing. They, they're songs written to hide the true meaning of, of Christmas. They never tell us about anything about Christmas. 
An atheist can sing these because the atheist doesn't want to think about, you know, this virgin conceiving and giving birth to the son of God who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day and is coming back to judge atheists. They don't want to think about that. Who wants to sing about that? That would ruin their Christmas. So there's a lot of songs that have arisen that are really their atheist Christmas songs. Now, if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you can't sing these songs or it's a sin to sing these songs. But it becomes sinful when we miss the meaning of Christmas. When we think about Christmas as walking in a winter wonderland. And there's no Jesus there. There are still other songs like, Oh, Christmas Tree, which is a song of praise and adoration to a tree. (laughs) There's a name for that in the Bible. You talk about how faithful that tree is, how unchanging that tree is, how see, how we uh, this, the, the tree sings to us and does things for us. It's almost like that tree is a god, and to some people it is. It's kind of like an altar they set up in their living room for a short time and worship. And all these songs, and I could go on and mention many others that you know of, um, are reinforced by pictures, by TV programs, by movies, by books. And what they create is this huge, dark smokescreen that hides the true meaning of Christmas from the world. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking, well, it hasn't fooled me because I'm a Christian and I read my Bible. Well, we'll just have to see about that, won't we? I want you to know every year, I no, not every year, but every couple of years, I give a little Christmas quiz that I made up to people. And, and oftentimes, uh, people do pretty good when they get about 50% right. 50% of people who come to Calvary Bible Church. That's not very good. You start asking questions about the Christmas story, and then all of a sudden what comes to mind is the songs, the smokescreen songs that kind of permeate into the Christmas story and distort the true meaning of Christmas and what really happened. And since the Christmas story is in the Bible, since it is a very significant event, we need to have our thinking correct in this area. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, okay, where do these distortions come from? And I started writing them down and thinking about it. I thought, you know, they come in really three different categories. There's chronological distortions. There are character distortions about the characters involved and then there are critter distortions um so we're going to talk about the chronology characters and critters of christmas and what i'm going to do is just do a survey of the christmas story and then as i go through the christmas story we'll be popping back and forth mostly from uh, matthew to luke since those two gospels the ones that contain the christmas story and then we'll just kind of slay some sacred christmas cows along the way and pop some christmas bubbles um and so be ready for that and so um get ready because we're going to be going back and forth. i just also want to say that you know when you, when you say where should you begin we could begin in genesis three fifteen, which is the first promise of the messiah 
but we're, we're going to pretty much skip the Old Testament. If you want to know about those prophecies, you can come back here December 30th, where we plan on having a, uh, in the Doctrine of Christ class, doing a survey of some of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So if you are interested in that, you can show up in the Doctrine of Christ class December 30th at 6 p.m. Well, the Gospel of Luke starts the Christmas story with the priest named Zacharias, who is serving in the temple. Zacharias is a um, a godly man, so is his wife. He's an older man, and the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, Your wife is going to conceive and give birth to the forerunner, to the Messiah. He doubts the angel. The angel then says, Okay, you're not going to be able to speak until the days John is born. And so he can't speak, but Elizabeth does get pregnant. Six months later, the angel Gabriel appears to another, um, this time a young lady, Mary, who is living in the town of Nazareth, a small village located west of the Sea of Galilee. Mary is married to a man named Joseph in the Jewish reckoning, um, which we will talk about later, or engaged in the Gentile reckoning. But if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and you can follow along as I read this account. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept wondering, pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him um, the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Now, Mary, again, here is approached by the angel Gabriel. She's told she's going to conceive while a virgin give birth to a son who's none other than the son of God, the son of the most high, the Messiah, who is going to rule and reign over the house of Israel forever. The one who fulfills the great promises made to Abraham and the promise made to uh, David and uh, fulfilling many of the prophecies, which I'm sure she had heard and uh, was familiar with. And then the angel decides to confirm to her that this is really going to happen. And he says, if you look in verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Mary knew Elizabeth, knew she was barren, knew she was an old woman, knew she couldn't have children. She's pregnant now in her sixth month. Luke one thirty nine tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the hill country in Judea, somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Gabriel also reminded Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 37 and 38, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So to give her confirmation he says you know and by the way if you're wondering if this is how this is going to work even elizabeth who can't who couldn't have a child and who's too old to have a child is now pregnant and in her sixth month and by the way 
Nothing is impossible with God. You know, whenever you wonder, you know, how could God do this? You have to remember that verse. Nothing is impossible with God. God is not uh, lacking power or means to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so she says, let it be done. Now, what do you think Mary did after this? It's so fascinating to think about what's in the white spaces here. Do you think she just got up in the morning and yawned and said, Mom, Dad, I I think I'm going to go visit Elizabeth. Do you think that's what she said? No, she probably got up that very second, woke up her parents and said, Mom, Dad, guess what just happened? I'm going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel told me. That is such a difficult thing. I mean, what if she was your daughter? What would you think? You'd think, oh, child, drink some wine. Um, you know, what do you do? There weren't even any psychologists to go mess her up with. You know, um, this had never happened before. And remember, when the prophecy was given of the virgin birth back in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz, the wicked king, had these oppressors that were, were coming down upon him. Isaiah goes to him and says, those oppressors are going to be done away with very soon. And he doubts and says, okay, the Lord gives you permission to ask for a sign, any sign you want. Make it as high as heaven. Make it as deep as shield. Just ask for a sign. And he says, well, I'm not going to test the Lord. And so he says, okay, the Lord's going to give you a sign as high as heaven and as deep as Sheol. A virgin's going to conceive and give birth to a son, and they're going to call his name God with us. And so that's what was prophesied. Now, Mary tells her parents, surely she told her parents, I can't imagine that she would have just got up, you know, and continued as normal after having... An angel visit her in the night and tell her she's going to give birth to the Messiah because every woman longed to give birth to the Messiah. It was like every woman's hope that she would give birth to the Messiah. It's not easy to believe, though, what the angel told her. Look at verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. Now at this time, Mary arose and went to, a hill, to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken to her, had what, what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now Mary remembered what the angel said. And so she gets up and she heads off to Elizabeth's house. I, you know, maybe she's looking for moral support. Maybe she told her parents that she was pregnant and they freaked out, didn't believe her and said, Sure, go to Elizabeth's house while we figure it out. Who knows? Um, but she goes there, and what's neat is, is God doesn't allow Mary to even tell Elizabeth anything. God helps Mary understand that this has taken place because as soon as she just opens the door and greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth then is filled with the Holy Spirit and just does this prophetic utterance. And in that prophetic utterance, she confirms that Mary is at that time pregnant and carrying the Lord in her womb. 
Now that is amazing. This then causes a little chain reaction. Mary then responds and launches into what is called the Magnificat, where she praises God and thanks God for choosing her to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 56, Luke says, And Mary stayed with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned home. Remember what the angel said previously, that Elizabeth is now in her sixth month. Mary then goes to visit Elizabeth, stays about three months. So John is almost ready to be born when Mary returns home. Now, We don't know the details of when Mary told her parents. But when she did tell her parents, I mean, they basically would have had two responses. One response is, well, that's amazing. You're going to give birth to the Messiah as a virgin. And the angel Gabriel talked to you. Daniel mentions him. That would be a hard pill to swallow, wouldn't it? Most likely, they probably thought, okay, who are you fooling around with? What happened? And that she made up this story to cover up her sin. We don't know. But the unavoidable reality was, when she came back, she was pregnant. Three months pregnant. And that's something that it's hard to hide. A good thing they wore loose clothing back then. Not only that, Mary was engaged which made things more complicated to a man named Joseph. Now, if you were Joseph and you found out that your fiance was pregnant and it wasn't you, what would you do? Well, let's see what Joseph does. Look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Matthew tells us about this in such brevity that it just begs to be discussed. But we can't know anything about what isn't said, but it's fun to think about it. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follow when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. Now, is that about as brief as you can get? It's like, well, what about the details, man? Tell us the saga here. And it says, and Joseph... Her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, you just need to stop there. Notice Matthew describes them as married, as husband and wife, because the Jews considered engagement legally binding. So when you were engaged with somebody, you had a legally binding contract, and you were considered husband and wife even before the wedding day happened. And the only way you can dissolve that engagement is to take legal action and divorce somebody. That's what send away means. Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, questions just beg to be asked at this point. Like, When did all of this happen? Who told Joseph that Mary was pregnant? Was it before 
she went to see Elizabeth or after she came back from Elizabeth's? You know, did Mary wake up, tell her parents, and then tell Joseph, and then leave? Or did Mary wake up, tell her parents, shock them to death, and then leave, and then say, Mom and Dad, by the way, when I'm at Elizabeth's, could you tell Joseph? (laughs) Dad, thanks. It's just not good. It could be that, you know, it happened just immediately. She woke up, told her parents, and they got married. But it doesn't seem that that's the way it is. Because Joseph, when he finds out about it, doesn't marry her immediately. He thinks about it. And the text says she immediately went to see Elizabeth. So most likely, he found out sometime after she had the dream while she was at Elizabeth's house. And he thought about it and thought, ah, I can't marry this gal. She's pregnant. And it's not my child. I'm not raising some kid who isn't mine. And so he decides, well, I'm just going to divorce her and try not to disgrace the family. And so he decides to do that. And then the Lord appears to him into a dream and convinces him, no, Holy Spirit, you know, this is what happened. Which tells us that Joseph did not believe Mary like most men would not. I mean, if your daughter said she was pregnant and while a virgin, I mean, you would think, hello, that does not happen. I mean, you know, I missed it, may have fell off the beat truck, but I didn't land on my head. Joseph went ahead and took Mary as his wife, according to Matthew 125, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. And there's lots of assumptions in all of this. It could be that the angel appeared to Mary, told her parents, um, and... The parents did tell Joseph and they immediately got married. I think that's kind of stretching what actually would fit there because then it would be very suspicious to have a wedding and then send your wife away for three months. That would not be a very good honeymoon. I mean, that would people go, where's your wife? Oh, I sent her away for a three month vacation. Well, you just got married. Oh, yes. I mean, doesn't that seem strange? Um, I think the best thing to think is that, yes, she had the dream, probably told her parents, then went to Elizabeth. They probably told Joseph. If they believed uh, Mary, they would have told Joseph and said, this is what happened. And obviously he didn't believe and he was going to divorce her. Or uh, maybe they didn't believe either. He went and, they went and maybe accused Joseph of defiling their daughter. Um, Joseph, of course, didn't believe the story, was going to divorce her anyways. Um, But now we have Joseph and Mary. They're married. Mary's three months pregnant, and uh, she's continuing on in her pregnancy. It doesn't say anything about the rest from the three months to the end. All we know is that Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth. Jesus, according to Micah 5.2, has to be born in Bethlehem. So you've got a problem here, a 90-mile problem. How do you get a woman in her third trimester about ready to give birth 90 miles south. I mean, they don't have trains or cars. It's not like you can zip down there for the day. We're talking dirt roads, walking through fields. How do you do that? Well, this is one of the great examples of God's God's providence, I think, as he begins to move to form a plan that he can get Joseph and Mary from point A to point B. So Jesus can be born in that place where he needs to be born. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, 
you'll see how God got them to the place he wanted them to be. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So what you have here is their, instead of just doing a normal census, for some reason, they want everybody to go to their hometown. And so there's people just traveling all over the place. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from a city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's a long discussion about the inn there, but we don't have time this morning. Uh, the word inn can mean inn or guest house or guest room. Um, the whole point here is that there was no room for them to stay. Some have said that Joseph would have never taken his wife down there. I mean, why would he take this pregnant woman? Because only the men would have to register. Well, listen, what if your wife was pregnant with the Messiah, the son of God? Would you leave her behind? It's like you'd want to really protect your wife and the baby. I think that's why he took her. Um, I'm sure it was very uncomfortable for her. I mean, you know, even a young spry teenager would probably have a, a serious time trying to travel 90 miles. You know, if you're a healthy teenager, you could, you know, go 20 miles a day, no problem. But when you're nine months pregnant, that is a whole different thing. Now, the good thing is, is she rode that donkey, right? No, no donkeys mentioned. So take that out of your nativity set. Um, no donkeys mentioned. And a horse isn't mentioned and a cart isn't mentioned. We, we don't know how they got down. We don't know if they walked and she rode a cart or she did a little both. We don't know. They were poor, so they probably didn't have their own animal. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But if they were able to travel 10, 15 miles a day, you know, it'd take them 8 to 10 days to travel from from point A to point B, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, when they get to, when you, if you go to Bethlehem today, there's a big church there. It's called church, the Church of the Nativity. At this time of year, it's it's like the you know, the Galleria. Um, there's people all over the place. They're packed around it and they're all trying to get in. And for some reason, I have no idea why this happened. The door into that church is like four feet high. So, you know, somebody like me, it hits me like right at the belly button, but you know, you have to bend down and then you go into this kind of dark church that smells like somebody had too much incense burning in there for hundreds of years. It's nasty. Anyways, you get in there and you, you smell all this weird incense and then there's this altar and then underneath the altar is this marble on the floor and then there is this 14 point silver star. Then there's this little hole where you can stick your hand in and touch the very place where Jesus dropped out right there. <laughs> Supposedly. And what's really interesting is people from all around the world go to touch that spot. I just want you to know, uh, we don't know that's where Jesus was born. You can go to Bethlehem and touch any spot on the ground anywhere, and you're, that spot is just as good as anywhere else. Um, they don't know where Jesus was born. 
They just know he was born in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. Now, we all know the songs, you know, good Christian men rejoice with those lyrics that say, good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give he heed to what we say. News, news. Christ is born today. Ox and ass before him bow. And he is in the manger now. Christ is born today. Christ is born today. Sorry, no ox, no ass are mentioned in the Christmas story. None. Take those out of your nativity set. Um... Or maybe the classic Christmas song, Away in a Manger. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down from where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my cradle this until morning is nigh. Well, there's no hay mentioned. Uh, it's reasonable to assume if they were in a stall that, uh, uh, you know, they did that. But, you know, I don't know about you, but if my wife was going to have a baby, I would not take her into where cattle were. Now, granted, it does say manger. I would pluck the manger and steal it from the cattle <laughs> and take it out place where it wasn't so smelly. You know, I don't know. But uh, just so you know, the cattle weren't lowing. It doesn't mention them. And I'm sure Jesus cried plenty, like all babies. Um, and, you know, when it comes down to it, there's only two kinds of animals mentioned in the Christmas story. And we don't even know what they are. The first ones is when the shepherds are watching over their flocks by night. And those flocks could either be flocks of goat or sheep, probably sheep. But the Bible doesn't say. So we aren't sure about that. Then the other animals are doves and pigeons. Because right after he's born, they take him into the temple and they offer the poor man's sacrifice, which is if you don't have a lamb, you offer up uh, turtle doves or pigeons. And we don't know which one they did. They just did one of those two. So if you want to throw out all the animals, put a couple pigeons in your nativity set, (laughs) and then you'll... At least have the right animals. Maybe one goat and one sheep with a question mark in each one. Um, So, you know, you don't lead any visitors astray. Of course, if the Magi had already visited Joseph and Mary on the night Jesus was born, they would have presented Jesus with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they would have been loaded. And they could have bought a sheep, a lamb, for their sacrifice instead of the pigeons. So we know for the first eight days, they weren't there. When were they there? We're getting there. We're getting there. But I just want you just to note that there was no little drummer boy. <laughs> no little drummer boy, parampapam pom playing that cute little automatopoeic rhyme and we've all heard the song um do you hear what i hear said the little lamb to the shepherd boy do you hear what i hear ringing through the sky shepherd boy do you hear what i hear a song a song high above the trees with a voice as big as the seas with a voice as big as the seas and then the third third stanza said the shepherd boy to the mighty king do you know what i know in your palace war mighty king do you know what i know a child a child shivers in the cold let us bring him silver or gold let us bring him silver or gold very cute song no shepherd boy is mentioned. Uh, a talking lambs are not mentioned. 
the poor baby Jesus shivering in the cold while his mother watches the Messiah freeze. (laughs) It's very good for exciting empathy and sympathy. It's just not true. At that time, there were shepherds involved. We learn about them in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Look there. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 2 and following. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known to the, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So God, what was very interesting, is he chose to announce Jesus' birth not to Herod, not to the nobility, not to the officials, not to the rich, not to the influential, not even to the people of the city, but to outsiders, those outside the city, living in the fields watching sheep. Uh, I think he wanted humble birth and the humility of Christ to have a humble announcement. And so he told the shepherds. So in the song, it came upon a midnight clear. The lyrics say it came upon a midnight clear. That glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth. Goodwill to men from heaven's all gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Still through the cloven skies, they come with peaceful wings unfurled and still their heavenly music floats over all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing and ever over its babble sounds the blessed angels sing it's a classic song but the bible doesn't describe the weather it could have been overcast that night the text never says the angels sang anything in chapter 2 verse 13 of luke it says and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising god and saying not singing that really destroys a lot of good songs No harps of gold are mentioned. No text of the Bible ever describes angels as having wings. The cherubim have wings and the seraphim have wings, but the Bible never calls them angels. And there's some living creatures in heaven which have wings and they are not called angels either. Whenever an angel appears and it is described, its form is human form. Now, does that mean they don't have wings and they just appear in human form? Maybe, but the Bible never says angels have wings. And certainly they didn't sing, so the whole world heard them. So Jesus is born. 
And that very night, the shepherds visit the baby Jesus, telling Mary and Joseph all that had happened to them when they were in the field. They saw the angel. They saw a a group of heavenly angels praising God, saying, not singing. And if you look at your nativity sets, the magi show up, but not in the Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. They don't show up that night, as we are already mentioned, uh, alluded by the fact that if they would have given Mary and Joseph all those treasures, they surely would have got a lamb instead of pigeons when eight days afterwards they circumcised and Mary um, gave a sacrifice for her uncleanness after giving birth. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, a magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For I saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, consider what we learn from these statements and what we don't learn. We learned that there was more than one magi. It says magi, and it's plural. That's all we know. There could have been two. There could have been 50. Why do we always say there's three? Because they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But two magi could have offered all three of those gifts each. Or 20 could have combined offered those three kinds of gifts. And so to say that there's three, we just don't know that. The Bible doesn't say. Now, the magi were kingmakers from Persia. We don't really know um, where these came from or how they found out about the star and looked for the king of the Jews and all that. But most believe that when Daniel was in Babylon and later on the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, that that Daniel's influence, Daniel discipled men talking to them about the coming of the Messiah, that these men were the kingmakers. They were the wise men of the Persians and they would instruct the nobility and that these um, kingmakers then, because of what Daniel told them knew about the coming of the messiah anyways they followed this star now it says from the east and and i just want you to know that they were in the east so they saw the star the star wasn't in the east they were in the east seeing the star in the west some people get confused about that well it says they saw the star in the east they were in the east and they came west they can't be west and looking east because then they'd be in the mediterranean ocean So we have the Magi. They're kingmakers. They're not kings. And they make this huge blunder because they show up and they tell Herod, hey, we're here. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And I'm sure Herod just like, Herod was this psychotic, bloodthirsty killer. I mean, he was, he was a lunatic. He killed his own sons and daughters just because he had a suspicion they might try to overthrow his throne. I mean, he was whacked out. He was weird. He was, he would, he would just kill people because anybody who even threatened that they might take over his throne. And so here, this entourage of magi and maybe two, maybe 20, you know, but they come and say, okay, where is he? Where is who? Well, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? What? And the text says, Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled by these things. Well, nobody told us. Of course, the shepherds are out in the field going, man, if we could ever get in, we could tell people. Look at verse four. 
Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this was been written by the prophet and you Bethlehem land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah for out of you shall come forth a ruler who a shepherd, my people Israel. And what's interesting is they leave off the part that says this is going forth for from long ago, even from the days of eternity. In other words, when the child's born, he's going to have existed from all eternity. Look at verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from the, determined the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search and uh, carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Sure. It's like Ka in the jungle book. Come to me. You know, where he doesn't want to befriend anybody. He's looking for a meal. Well, Herod wants to kill the child. Jesus. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So the star here is not your typical star. It wasn't like this fixed reference point that they kind of looked. This star actually moved around and navigated. It was kind of like an early form of GPS navigation, I guess. But, you know, it moved around and helped them find where they needed to go because they saw the star they started in the east they saw the star which would have been west they traveled to jerusalem and then they asked about it and then when they left they saw the star and now bethlehem is south so now they're looking south and they go south and it leads them to the very place where jesus is now luke specifically says though that the that Joseph and Mary right after they did everything according to the law of Moses returned to Nazareth. If you look at Luke chapter 2 verse 39, this is kind of a key text. It says and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city. Now the question that commentators have asked is this. Does Luke because Luke doesn't include um you know, all this stuff about the Magi and their flight to Egypt and, and their return and then they're moving to Nazareth. Does Luke just kind of just cut all of that out and then just have them going to Nazareth? Well, if you look at the text, it seems that this is eight days later. They circumcise Jesus, they offer their sacrifice, and then they head back home. That's logical. That's reasonable. They live in Nazareth. I mean, it's not like they moved to Bethlehem to, for the census. They just went to the census in Bethlehem and then they would logically return home. What this means is 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 it's probably best not to try and insert everything into this verse but to just say 8 days later after they had fulfilled the law they went back home. And they went back home and after they got home they probably started talking saying, "Hey, you know, maybe we should move back down to Bethlehem. I mean, after all, it is the city of David and you know, we do have the Messiah here and that would probably be the best place to raise him or maybe he found work there or whatever. But I think they move back down. Why? Because when the Magi come and they find them, what, what, what does the text says? say? They came and found him where? In a house. Did you see that? It says in a house. We have come to worship him and uh, let's see this is uh, right here after coming verse 11 of Matthew 2 after coming into 
the house. Notice not the stable. The house. So Jesus here is a child, a toddler. And you think, well, how do you know he's not just, I mean, how do you know they just didn't have him in the stable? And how do you know that they didn't, you know, move into a house just a day or two later when they found a place to live and that they came and the Magi did that? Well, one of the reasons is because of their offering. Another reason is because of what Herod does. What does Herod do? When he tells the Magi, you know, go report the Magi then get a dream and their dream is get out of Dodge, go back. And what we want you to do is just leave. Uh, God says, just leave. And Herod then gets jealous, doesn't he? And he then concocts a plan to do what? To eliminate the Christ child. And so he orders that all the male children in Bethlehem and the vicinity are all slain from what age? Two years and under. That is the age that he determined based off of what the Magi told him. So the Magi said, this is when it happens, and this is when he was born, and this is how long we've been. So probably Jesus is around a year and a half, and Herod just gave, you know, a six-month buffer just to make sure he got him. And so that's how we know Jesus isn't a baby. So take the Magi out of your nativity set and put them at the other end of the house. And when people say, where's the, where's the magi? Where's the kings? Well, they weren't kings. Where's the magi? They're in our bedroom. Why? Because they don't get here for another year and a half. <laughs> so when you hear the, the song, we three kings of Orion are bearing gifts. We traverse afar field and fountain, more and mountain falling yonder star. Realize they weren't kings. They were instructors of kings. There's also, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day. There were no ships. <laughs> Bethlehem is inland. And they came from the east. That's the Sahara Desert. There's no ships out there in the Sahara Desert sailing around. The Magi didn't sail in any ships. No bells rang, nor does the Bible say the angels and all the souls of earth sang together the night Jesus was born. So when did all of this take place? So when did all of this take place? Well, we don't know that for certain either. Um, But we do have a pretty good idea. December 25th is a good guess, but it's a guess. Um, For details I can't go into right now, uh, but are pretty fascinating. When you look at, there's, there's two great works on chronology that I would encourage you, if you're into this stuff, you could get. One is um, James Usher's Annals of the World. Uh, James Usher uh, was a, a kind of a Puritan brainiac who constructed a history of the world from creation to the birth of Christ. And he did all this before evolution was invented. And it is a fascinating read because he just assumes the Bible's true. And he writes a whole history of the world using the Bible as the anchor for all of his information. It's a fascinating read because you get kind of the pure biblical perspective. So James Usher's book is good. Then um, a more recent work is by Harold Honer called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And Harold Honer has done incredible work looking at eclipses you know that happened josephus mentions the eclipse and how long after that herod died and you know we know herod was died somewhere around march or april um 
in uh, 4 BC. You're thinking, well, 4 BC, how wouldn't that be like you know, zero or um, one or what? And I say, well, no, because they got the calendar wrong when they invented the calendar that started with the birth of Christ. That happened several hundred years later, and they tried to extrapolate backwards because the calendar at that time, when they changed the calendar, was based off of the founding of Rome. And so, anyways, there's stuff. Anyways, four. BC, the spring of 4 BC is when Herod died. So we know Jesus was born before that. So um, uh, what comes down to as probably the best guess that we have is Jesus was born in either December of 5 BC or right after that in January of 4 BC. And so um, if you want to read an interesting little treatment on this, and, and this is going to sound scary, but it's it's not scary to read. It's actually within the grasp of, I think, everybody here. Um, there is a couple words in there like terminus quo and things like that, but you can figure it out from the context. Is Bibliotheca Sacra, that's the theological journal of the Dallas Theological Seminary, often known as Bibsac, has, uh, he has a, a, an article on just the, the timing and date of the birth of Christ. Very fascinating. If you think, well, where do I get that? You can always call and ask my secretary. She might give you a copy if you're nice. Anyways, very fun read. It's volume 130, October 1973, page 338 and following. I'd encourage you to read that. It's very fun. We don't have time to go into details here. So what does all this mean? We've surveyed the whole Christmas story. We've debunked and slayed all those things. There's blood everywhere. Now we don't know what song to sing because they're all wrong. Uh, actually, there's quite a few good ones, and uh, even the ones that talk about sentimental things are okay, as long as you don't let them eclipse Christmas. All right. So there's no ships, no magi visiting the baby Jesus the night he was born, no drummer boy, no shepherd boy, no angels with golden harps singing for the whole world to sing, no ships sailing in, no kings visiting. All right, so what are, what are the, big, the big things? The first thing Christmas says to us is this. God loves us. That is the first thing, the big idea of Christmas. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he was born on Christmas. The birth of Jesus is an expression of God's love to unworthy sinners. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Christmas should just conjure up in your mind as a believer that every Christmas, man, God loves us. God loves us. God loves us. Secondly, that God's love for mankind caused him to become a man himself, which is the second big idea is not only that God loves us, but the incarnation of God, that God became a man you know, what's interesting is when you look at what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where he says, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I haven't preached this as a Christmas sermon yet. This is next year. Um... <laughs> Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then it talks about how God exalted him and every knee will bow to him. The whole point is, is that God's love for unworthy sinners was so great that God was willing to humble himself and enter 
into a virgin's womb and be born a helpless baby and grow up in a sin-cursed world and offer himself up as a sacrifice so that those who could not save themselves could be saved. And that is the great truth about Christmas. It's not trees, it's not snow, it's not Santa, it's not reindeers, it's not presents, it's certainly not shopping malls this time of year. Isaiah says, speaking in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in dark, a dark land, the light will shine on them. Well, that life was Jesus. John talks about this in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. There is a true light which coming to the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, that's all of us here, if any of you will receive him, if you choose to receive him, to them... John says, God gives the right for those who receive Christ as their Savior to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Have you done that? That is the great response of Christmas, is to receive the great Christmas gift of God himself and the person of Christ. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 goes on to say, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Notice, born to us. Given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, you know what? God has accomplished the first part. The child was born. A child was given. He's got all of those great titles. But the government isn't yet resting on his shoulders. And this is the third response. Not only a response of knowing God loves you, not only knowing that God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ to save you, but that you need to repent. You know, a lot of times people think of salvation as um, an option. If I want to, I can become a Christian. And if I don't want to, I don't have to. I'm going to think about it. And so... You know, there's a lot of pastors who would get up before their congregations. You, why don't you think about this? Maybe you would like to receive Christ. No, that's not what the Bible says. When Paul was speaking to the Greeks in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, he says, God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent. He's commanded it. He's declared it. Repent. Why? For there is coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead through that man who is appointed heir, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Salvation is a command. God commands you to repent. I mean, but think about it. Just think about this. God creates the world. Men rebel. God puts up with them for a long time. He's still putting up with them. He gives them his law. That doesn't work. He gives them Christ. Christ does everything. God does everything. God says, okay, I came to earth, I paid the price, I made the sacrifice, I I paved the way, I'll save you by grace, I'm putting this out to you, repent, turn from your sins, receive me, believe in my son, and what he did, 
and his resurrection. I will save you. You will get to live in heaven with me for all eternity. You will be my children. I will adopt you. I will forgive you. I will justify you. You get it all. You get it all for free. I command you to do this. And so that's why the sin of rejecting Christ is so grievous. Because what it is, is God saying, I love you enough to die for you. And you're saying, no. No. So if you don't know Jesus, you know what to do. Today is the day of salvation. And if you do know Jesus, you know what to do. Praise God for loving you. Praise God for sending his son. And praise God that by his grace, you have believed. And then worship the king because he's coming back. And it may be today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. What a great God you are. And Father, we have surveyed so many passages that we could have spent so much more time on. But Father, I just thank you for your word. It's clarity. It's absolute clarity of the purpose and meaning of Christmas. As we go out in the world and we hear all those songs written by many of them unbelievers, and we sing those tunes and we memorize the lyrics, may they not obscure from our minds and our hearts the true meaning that Christmas is about Christ, the Son of God, born to live that he might die, that he might rise again, so all through faith in him could have the free gift of eternal life. And that he is no longer humbled. He is no longer living in humility. He's no longer a baby. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Help us to remember that and to worship our king. in the way we live, the way we speak, and the way we think. May we do all these things for your glory and honor and praise. Amen.